90% of all scientists that have ever been alive are alive today. That's a lot of information, but don't panic. It's not an exact science. Hey, Shannon, how are you? I don't know. <laughs> School's about to start. I haven't written all my syllabi, you know, same old, same old for this time in January. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, we enter the the vicious academic cycle once more. Oh, man. I mean, do you miss not writing syllabi? No, because, well, okay, I do, except they're called contracts now. (laughs) Oh, I would like to say they're much more binding, but syllabi are binding too, students. (laughs) Well, and both of them, the other party always tries to figure out a way to weasel out of them through the fine details. Exactly. Ah, ah, ah. I had somebody come at me with an and or statement. I was like, man, I guess at least you read it. (laughs) Wow. Yeah, it was pretty intense. (laughs) So, um, yeah, you know, class starts. I'm leaving the first week of class to uh, go sample out in Arizona. So that should be fun. But, I mean, you're not even in my same uh, time zone again right now, are you? (laughs) No, I'm an hour later, and this podcast did not come out on Friday, but instead on Saturday. Yeah, it's been a rough uh, week. Because I, I got stuck in an airport, if you can imagine that. <laughs> it's been a while, though, hasn't it? Yeah, and I didn't have to sleep there, so that's good. <laughs> but if you're going to sleep somewhere, I mean, Dallas is where you want to sleep, probably. It's true. I know people there. Yeah, yeah, it's not too bad. Um, uh, yeah, so you were fighting with this terrible winter weather, I say in quotation marks, because it hasn't happened quite yet, and my money, literal money, is on. We're not going to get any terrible winter weather here in Norman, so we'll see what happens. So when I landed, my building had just come out from being under a tornado warning, so I had no idea if it was still there or not. <laughs> uh, for the second, no, third time this year. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. So, yeah, you know... Had had the intern go check on things, and there was water under one of the doors, but that was it. Uh, and so, yeah, we had a tornado warning, uh, lots of severe thunderstorm stuff rolling through. My flight out of Dallas was a little bumpy from the same system until we climbed up to, I think, about 36,000 feet and got on top of it. Nice. And, uh, yeah, then we're going to get snow tomorrow, it looks like, in northwest Arkansas. Uh- yeah, um, all day, man, everybody's been like, oh, yeah, we're getting three to four inches. And I'm like, have you people been around here in the in the wintertime? No, but whatever. We'll see what happens. I may be eating, eating my words. Hopefully I am because I would love it to be snowed in tomorrow, but we'll see. I find it humorous that three to four inches is snowed in. It's Oklahoma. People are already <laughs> off in the ditches and there's not even snow on the ground yet. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> just like, just the fear of it makes people incapable of driving. <laughs> it's true. Yeah. Uh, this is my husband's favorite time of year since he's from Iowa. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. <laughs> he just like shakes his head at all of us freaking out. But <laughs> Well, I thought it was interesting. In Siloam, the, uh, like, they held the students in school. Because there was a tornado warning, so that, you know nobody could leave. Mm-hmm. They're all sheltering in place. Uh, the brewery didn't open on time. That's a tragedy. That is, my goodness. Like, uh, and several things just shut down. Wow, you know, I mean, I like that. That's great. 
right? Yeah. Uh, I, I think it's great unless you're trying to look for somewhere to hide and everything's shut. Yeah, that's that's a problem. Or you're trying to get your beer so you can walk out on the porch and look at it. <laughs> yeah, they had a post, you know, the, the owner of the brewery is like, well, a few years ago, we probably would have been standing out in the parking lot drinking a pint. Uh, but, you know, we thought it was more prudent to delay opening. It's like, you know, I don't know about that. That's true. Yeah, that is very interesting. I did definitely run and get my kid out of daycare early, mostly because I didn't want to get rained on. But um, everyone inside was very freaked out. The clouds were very black. And <laughs> the poor girl at the front desk was super nervous. And I said, it's fine. I'm just in a hurry because I don't want to get rained on. And you should probably run. And she got, <laughs> she didn't quite, <laughs> my weather humor was not appropriate in that situation. <laughs> yeah. And my kid was even like, I'm scared. I'm like, it's fine. So it's been fine here. It's been interesting. I love these days. It was 71 at lunchtime. <laughs> and uh, yeah, the uh, four hour temperature change map on the Oklahoma Mesonet is beautiful. <laughs> so. <laughs> I think last year, didn't you all have a 40, somewhere between 40 and 50 degree four hour change one day? Uh, yeah, we're at 36 right now, I think. Our 36 is our five hour temperature change. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, 36 Fahrenheit. Like, it's so weird. I love it so much. These are my favorite days. It felt like a May morning this morning when I let the dog outside to go to the bathroom, which we'll come back around to later on. We will. <laughs> And, you know, so I'm I'm actually in Boston right now, and I was dreading coming to Boston in January, but it's 50 degrees Fahrenheit. Yeah. <laughs> For once you left all the snow behind you. That's pretty funny. <laughs> yeah, no, it's it's great. Uh, and I'm actually here for the American Meteorological Society meeting. That's exciting. It's a big um, anniversary for AMS this year, right? So they're holding it in Boston, which is where they're based out of. Yeah, it's the 100th meeting, 100th annual meeting. That's awesome. That is so uh, cool. And we will be talking more about it next week. Mm -hmm. uh, some of the things I get to see and people I get to talk to here. Uh, but I'm excited. I just got in today. Obviously, like I said, I'm stuck in Dallas. So we're recording this very late. And as soon as we finish recording, I am going to knock out. But I will get it out the next morning. Yep. I'm sure everybody's waiting excitedly for this. <laughs> Yes. Uh, so far, there are no angry emails. Uh, well, I mean, they got to have something to do during their first class of the semester, right? So they can just put their headphones in and listen to us. Exactly. <laughs> I just want to shout out, too, to one of my colleagues who gave me some flack today. He had emailed me on Tuesday, and I responded today, and he goes, oh, yeah, three days, just like you said in your podcast. <laughs> Ooh. I know. Accountability. <laughs> exactly. Ugh. People I know aren't supposed to listen to this. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, I'll probably check my email after this. So let's get going. <laughs> All right. Well, in the spirit of me being here to talk about weather this week, uh, you thought it might be a good idea to talk about, as, as you eloquently called it in the notes, <laughs> weird clouds. <laughs> I had so many people asking me, all day today because we had a lot of weird clouds come through and so people would be like is that the tornado i'm like there are no tornadoes right now guys <laughs> and like what about that one is that one a tornado <laughs> like oh my goodness <laughs> did you use the phrase slc <laughs> i no 
So that's one of my favorite. You can say that cloud, oh, that's just an SLC, which is a scary looking cloud. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's like the uh, the mineral lever, right? Lever right there. It's not worth picking up. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> there were a lot of SLCs and they were very black and really disturbing. So that on top of the fact that today's astronomy picture of the day put out by NASA was nacreous clouds. I thought we should talk about some weird cloud types. Some of these we've talked about on other shows, but I just thought we'd do a rundown because clouds have been in the news a lot lately. It's true. Yeah. And, you know, even with the the tragedy that's going on in Australia, we're getting some of these as well. Right. Exactly. Um, so we can start with what started this whole thing off, uh, which was the A-Pod today. And so if you want to go to the A-Pod right now, the astronomy picture of the day, it's these cool, well, you'll need to go to the archives and look up January 10th's A-Pod. <laughs> um, right. And so it's these nacreous clouds over Sweden. And they are these weird pearlescent looking clouds and you see them at night right so they're a type of noctilucent clouds which we've talked about on here before too um and they're just they're really beautiful they look like they're glowing they look like they're making their own light which isn't exactly true right in the same way the moon doesn't make its own light right what So, you know, these nacreous clouds, I just, I'm going to keep saying it because it's so cool. <laughs> or mother of pearl clouds, they say. You know, these are really rare. Um, and you see these things at high latitudes. Okay. So they say they're a type of polar stratospheric cloud. And they happen when they you have these cold temperatures, um, unusually cold temperatures. And obviously you don't usually get clouds in the stratosphere, right? But it, it's pretty dry, generally. Uh, exactly. <laughs> but sometimes if you have a wettish stratosphere, you can form these ice crystals. And the reason they look like they're glowing or creating their own light is because they're in the stratosphere. <laughs> so you're still getting sunlight reflecting off of them at those heights. And you can see them when it's dark on the ground. And that's super neat. Obviously, I haven't seen these, but I'd love to. <laughs> Yeah, and the sun can be up to like six degrees below the horizon and still be providing illumination because these are up at, you know, 15 to 30 kilometers. Yeah, that's Which is, awesome. you know, 50 to 80,000 feet in Yankee units. So when I saw this A-pod, and I know that you like noctilucent clouds a lot, and I didn't understand what the difference was. Like, why were they calling these things nacreous clouds and not noctilucent clouds? Because these noctilucent clouds are also these clouds that glow. So it's dark outside, but the clouds look like they're, you know, creating their own light. And the difference between these is quite a bit, actually. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So it's actually more than the height of the stratospheric nacreous clouds. Uh, so the nacreous clouds are 15 to 30 kilometers. Uh, the noctilucent clouds are actually mesospheric. So they're 80 to 85 kilometers up. That's unbelievable. Where do you get, I mean, yes. Wow. So, (laughs) so for all you severe weather nerds out there, this is really what deep moisture is. (laughs) Yes, exactly. And I mean, they look 
like they're not substantial. They're just this layer of ice crystals. Um, that's unbelievable that you can get enough liquid at 85 kilometers to create these ice crystals. Especially considering what the vapor pressure is up there. Yes! Like, that's <laughs> unbelievable. I feel like this should have been a thermo question, but it wasn't. It's true. This would make an excellent parcel lifting problem. Uh, yeah. How did... Uh, Clazel, how did you not do this to us? <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, but this is really cool. So the same thing. They look like these glowing clouds. The sun's below the horizon. Obviously quite a bit if these are at 85 kilometers. Um, but these are little faint guys. These nacreous clouds can be much more substantial since they're just... You know, in the just in the stratosphere. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, so that's a really pretty picture. If you haven't seen these, you should look them up. Have you seen these in real life? I've have never you? seen one, no. Okay. Yeah. I haven't either. I mean, but, you can... I mean, to give you an idea of the altitude, like a commercial airliner is not even touching the nacreous cloud. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Not even close. And then these noctilucent clouds it's 250 to 280,000 feet that's, yeah that's, that's space yes yes essentially <laughs> <laughs> um but you can see noctilucent clouds they don't occur just at the poles um you can see them at i say relatively low latitudes but like 50 or 60 degrees you can see them too yeah not arkansas though <laughs> Correct, yes, <laughs> not Arkansas. Maybe when you go to Canada for one of your teaching soirees, you can see some. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, the, uh, those are great. But those are those qualify as weird clouds. I would say so. Anything that's lit after the sun goes down is pretty strange. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. I mean, how do you get there? They've got to be pretty short-lived, right? I don't know. I mean... Those layers don't change that fast. That's true. As I was saying that, I realized what I was saying because... Like, even planetary waves are going on right. under you. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> I mean, I wonder... So, you know, you've got to have... Not only do you have to have moisture, but you have to have something we talk about all the time because it's one of my favorite things to talk about is cloud condensation nuclei, right? So you got to get dust in there. So I wonder if these are more common during like volcanoes or something like that the only thing i could think of was like if you've got the and i hate this word polar vortex <laughs> what's its name <laughs> uh, if, if you have some way to accelerate moist air and loft it that's the only thing i can think of that could get this so i, I would think it's got to be either a really deep crushing low or something that's spewing things out, like a volcano. Yeah. Um, I read a little spiel about it. It said, you know, the space shuttle obviously put a lot of CCN and some moisture in, but just made little minuscule clouds. But, yeah, right. it's got to be something. Hmm. Um, also, a, an interesting thing. Uh, the mesosphere contains very little moisture, approximately 100 millionth that of air in the Sahara. Wow. <laughs> Ice crystals can form only at temperatures of minus 120C or below. Wow. <laughs> yeah, so that's interesting. And noctilucent clouds form during the summer. 
because the mesosphere is actually coldest during the summer. Okay, yeah. Yeah, because of variations in, you know, the wind column. So these clouds require very cold temperatures to create, uh, but the next type of cloud on our list requires very hot temperatures. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, so do you, have you ever referred to this cloud as a flammogenitus cloud? <laughs> no. Okay. <laughs> this was the first time I've ever seen flammogenitus as the cloud name. <laughs> to me, that sounds more like a biology term. <laughs> yeah, it definitely does. Like, ooh, <laughs> you better clean up that flammogenitus. Um, <laughs> so I've just always called these clouds pyrocumulus clouds. That's what I've known them as. That's what I. That's what both of us learned them as in, exactly. in school at OU. Uh, so this is the only, not the only time, but this is definitely one time that I'm like, mm, Wikipedia, really? But I don't know. There's links in here for the World Meteorological Association um, classification of flammogenitus clouds. Yeah, j just because it's in the WMO manual doesn't mean it's what people do. Absolutely correct. <laughs> so uh, we call these things pyrocumulus clouds. And they've definitely been in the news um, because of all the terrible wildfires over Australia. And they're producing these huge pyrocumulus clouds. Right. And so this happens with, with wildfires, with volcanoes, with things that produce so much heat that you're able to suddenly increase the buoyancy of parcels up to the point where they get through the stable layer in the lower atmosphere, the boundary layer, and convect. Right. And in these cases, whether it's a wildfire or a volcano, abundant cloud condensation nuclei um, are around and therefore fairly easy to make these storms. Um, and you might think, okay, well, a pyrocumulus cloud's got to be good, right? Because it's going to create its own rain that will eventually put out the fire. And while, yes, that does happen, they also create lots of lightning, which can just start more fires. <laughs> I would say arguably more lightning than rain. Yeah, that's probably uh, true. I don't know that I've ever really heard of a volcanic pyrocumulus producing significant amounts of rain, but I've seen lots of photos and videos of them producing stunning amounts of lightning. Yes. Yeah, that is correct. And maybe, you know, maybe this other article I read doesn't know either. But <laughs> yeah, th these pyrocumulus are so creepy looking though. Um, these ones coming, these pictures coming out of Australia, you know, we'll put some links in the show notes. I know there are a lot of videos of people going over here because obviously you can see these clouds in, you know, visible satellite. But the difference between like the cloud of smoke and a pyrocumulus cloud is exactly that. It It's enough buoyancy to get, you know, past whatever cap is on top of it and convect. Right. And so that actually generates a lot of this rubbing of particles that causes charge separation that gets you your nice three layers storm model that gets you the lightning. Exactly. And they're usually really dirty looking, which is interesting, too. Um, those lightning pictures from volcanoes are unbelievable. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And people like think those are fake. I'm like, actually, that's one of the few <laughs> natural phenomenon posters that aren't fake. <laughs> And so one cool thing is they've actually been able to reproduce in the lab lightning from volcanic eruptions without the convection part. Right. Just because of the, the charge separation caused by all the particles. 
Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it's like big static electricity. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's more exciting when there's a pyrocumulus cloud to go with it, though. Oh, yeah, definitely. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And that contributes more to more of the particle rubbing. and Right, and more of the lightning. And, and right. then you can create forest fires with your volcano, so there you go. <laughs> In several ways. Uh-huh, yeah, exactly. Um, that's scary. Why do people live near volcanoes at all? <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, fertile soil. Yeah. Mm, look at that 20 catch 22. <laughs> yeah. That's terrible. Um, speaking of lab created weird cloud types, you can also make Kelvin Helmholtz waves in the lab too. Yes. So I- I've always said Helmholtz. It is Helmholtz. I just say Helmholtz. So uh, okay. <laughs> Sometimes I say both instead of both. So there you go. <laughs> All right. <laughs> yeah. So Kelvin Helmholtz waves. Um, and these are those weird, if a child draws a picture of waves, these can become clouds. <laughs> right. So it's like if you took a cross section of a wave and you get that kind of crusty look, um, the atmosphere can do that. And they actually, if you do a time lapse of them or just lay on the ground and watch them, they break like an ocean wave. They roll up and break. Yeah, it's so weird. I mean, it's it's exactly what I would have drawn as a child, drawing the surface of the ocean. You know, those big sort of ridiculous looking crests that you want a surfer to be riding in between. Um, these things are super weird. And this is lovely fluid dynamics right all you need is basically fluids of different densities or something you know moving at different speeds and you can create these waves at the interface and we quantify that with my favorite number oh no in thermodynamics oh no the brunt weissler number <laughs> bless you <laughs> <laughs> or brunt weissler frequency so you can calculate this based on lapse rate and some other things and determine if you're going to get this phenomena. Yeah, because you don't, I don't know. How many times have you seen these? I guess I've, I've seen mm. them quite a few times, but I'm also hypersensitive to their, their appearance because they're really neat. I mean, including raggedy, crusty looking ones, maybe yeah. a dozen. Yeah. Uh, textbook, like amazingly clear twice. Twice, yep. That's, ex- yes, I remember exactly where my two textbook-like sightings were as well. <laughs> so, I mean, you just get two layers of air, different densities moving past each other. You can do this with liquids, too. Um, and so you can create these all the time in the lab. Uh, <laughs> I like to create them when you have, like, a clear puddle, but then there's some mud in it, too. You can work up that mud and get it to flow through you know, the clear water in your puddle and it creates these um, KH waves right there at the interface between those two layers. It's really neat looking. Yeah. And you don't always, these are not uncommon, uh, but a lot of times the condensation is uncommon. So they occur all the time. If you have a vertical profiling radar, Mm -hmm. uh, like a small wavelength radar, you see these in that data all the time. It's just Mm -hmm. their clear air. Right. Exactly. Yeah, that's a good point. You just don't see them. Right. Hmm. Creepy. Um, I love those. If you've never seen them, you should look them up. Uh, they're real neat. Definitely a weird cloud type. Right, and you also see them called KHI, Kelvin Humboldt's Instability. Yes. Yeah, there you go. Uh, Which 
I don't know. I don't know if I like that usage. I mean, I get I don't it. mind it. I mean, it's not a it's not a static stable laminar system. Yeah, I guess. Okay. <laughs> it's dynamical, which I completely thought was a made up word for a while, but it's not. <laughs> this is like orientating. Right. <laughs> A dynamical system is the appropriate description. Oh, my goodness. Like economical, which I also feel is made up. But... Right. Mm-hmm. All right. I digress. <laughs> so it's not too... Well, it's semi-related to our next set here. Sort of. There sort are, of. are waves in the name. <laughs> uh, which would be like a, a wave cloud or a lenticular cloud. And lenticulars are my favorite. Right, and I feel like that's what you see more of um, are these lenticular clouds. I don't know if I've ever seen, like, super large-scale wave clouds. I guess I have. They just don't look as cool as a lenticular cloud. And when we say that, these are the flying saucers that appear over mountain ranges or even on top of big uh, cumulonimbus systems. Yeah, so there's stacks of pancakes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I love it when they're little hats on top of the overshooting top of a big thunderstorm. Mm-hmm. I'm like, oh, look, it's where mountains, mountain building and cloud building are exactly the same physics. I love it. And yeah, so it's the same physics. We saw a lot of lenticular clouds in Colorado. Oh, yeah, all the time. And I mean, that's exactly, you know, that's it's forced. It's air moving upwards because there's something in the way, right? This big mountain and it moves upwards and it sort of overshoots up there. As it goes over this topography, and it's like, oh, look, I hit my uh, condensation level, and boop, there's a cloud, right? And then you can get sort of the pancake stacking of those lenticular clouds that's very common over any mountain ranges, really. Right, and, you know, these are best viewed from Sidon. Mm-hmm. Uh, like, I mean, sure, you can see these little round circles on a satellite view, but the waves, like mountain waves, are actually much better viewed from a satellite than from the ground. <laughs> right, because these are big, long honkies. Um, so the lenticular ones you get above little peaks, just like the overshooting top of a thunderstorm. Um, so those are sort of individualized. And then you get those big wave clouds um, over, just like you said, entire mountain ranges. So kilometer scale length clouds here. Right, and from the ground, it just looks like alternating bands of more and less cloudy. Right, yeah, exactly. It's not super, yeah. I mean, some of the pictures of them are really neat, but I think that's why you definitely notice lenticular clouds more than you notice these big wave clouds. And I think this is the explanation. I've not been able to get a meteorologist to give me a fantastic explanation of this phenomena, which is a rare thing. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, no kidding. (laughs) Um, But I think it's related to mountain waves. And I've saved several plots from when I had my weather station when we lived in Colorado, mm-hmm. where I had perfectly sinusoidal winds. Wow. Okay. Like my, my wind speed, if you plotted it, was a almost dead on perfect fit to a sinusoid with a six hour period. That is weird. <laughs> and I have multiple days where we observed this. I think it has to be something about a mountain wave coming off, but it's really long period. That is very interesting. Hmm. But so far, nobody, and I'm at the right place this week (laughs) to get answers. Exactly. Yeah, maybe you should try to find somebody about this. 
But maybe <laughs> maybe I'll tweet with the uh, the AMS hashtag. Who can explain this to me? <laughs> you might be. There's a beverage in it for you. Oh no! <laughs> Get your money out. Minnie will try. <laughs> right. <laughs> I mean, oh, so where do these guys belong in the atmosphere? Right, mountains are pretty high up there. Yeah, sure. <laughs> it's like none of this impresses me now, even if these are high tropospheric clouds, because it's like, ooh, eight kilometers? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Not impressed. No. <laughs> but they are really cool looking from the ground, for sure, or from the satellite. And you can find, um, you know, satellite pictures of these weird wave clouds all over the place. And they're related to the next thing that we're going to talk about uh, in the form of mountain rotors, and which are actually very dangerous and have caused several fatal plane crashes. Mm-hmm. Um, and also, have you ever called these things Arcus clouds? No, I have not. Mm-hmm. Exactly. I like to call these horizontal vorticity rolls because it's more fun. Yeah, I normally just say roll clouds, but... Yeah, horizontal vorticity rolls makes me sound pretentious. <laughs> It's true. Um, yeah, so I guess they're called... Arctic then you follow clouds. it with big, long honkies. <laughs> That's right, just to put everyone back at ease. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I've never... I mean, so sh- roll clouds fall into this category of Arcus clouds, and so do shelf clouds, even though they're both... They're different types of Arcus clouds. I've never seen a really good roll cloud in action. I mean, I've seen pictures and you know, seen systems that have produced cool ones, but I've never really sat there and just like watched a good time lapse or just watched one in real life. I've seen a pretty good one in real life, but wasn't able to hang out real long because the roll cloud or shelf clouds associated with a gust front. And I don't particularly want to be there when it gets there. (laughs) Yeah, right. Yeah. If you see these (laughs) things, yeah, don't, I mean, yeah, it's bad stuff is on the other side of them. Right, very high winds, rapid temperature change, potentially a supercell. Mm, yeah, potentially, yes. <laughs> and lots of people. So roll clouds are these, I mean, they're like long tubes. Um, they're, I found this <laughs> interesting. There's one called the morning glory cloud. And so, yeah. yeah, so these are like these weird waves, solitary waves of these clouds. And they're associated with um, sea breezes which we talked about on a different show um so you can get these out over the ocean but they're dangerous because that's what they are they're rolling i mean they're horizontal vorticity rolls it's you know what happens before you stand a supercell up on end basically and so they're less intense horizontal tornadoes (laughs) correct yes that's exactly what they are yeah (laughs) yeah as opposed to a vertical vorticity roll which is a tornado and so, yeah, you don't want to fly near that. No, and really what we think happens in a lot of storms is once you develop an updraft, this horizontal vorticity gets kind of, if you lay a string out on the table mm-hmm. and you grab the center of it and pull it up, mm-hmm. that's sort of what happens to this. So it gets stretched, which conservation of momentum makes it spin faster. faster. And now you've turned the horizontal vorticity into two locuses of vertical vorticity, one clockwise, one anticlockwise. Mm. And we think that's where tornado genesis really gets cranking. Exactly. And only one of those takes over. So you can see both cyclonic and anti-cyclonic tornadoes, one more common than the other. Yes. 
so I, I will I will have you ever seen both? I have. Yes. <laughs> it was on uh, it was when I used to drive the cars um for his sub vortex project and I say the cars uh when I worked for the Severe Storms Lab and we were it was one of my first outings and I was, you know, this sophomore meteorology student driving these cars and we stopped and you could see both the cyclonic and anticyclonic um spin in this storm it was which was preceded very er yes which followed very quickly with me being told to drive as fast as i possibly could right (laughs) (laughs) to get out of our location (laughs) yeah it was several years ago i was chasing with uh howie and Mm -hmm. What we saw cyclonic and anticyclonic tornadoes on the ground from the same storm. Oh, uh, it was amazing. It's unbelievable. Yeah. And so that's what these things are. That's exactly right. Like, I mean, that's scary. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah. Probably ones associated with the sea breeze aren't quite as scary to watch, but the ones that you do want to get away from are the shelf cloud variety because behind that is bad stuff. <laughs> Right, so run these things. If you watch, you're going to see little pieces of scud or just junk condensation mm-hmm. uh, getting just sucked up like this thing was a hoover. Oh, there was so much scud in the in the sky today. That's what was really scaring people, I think. Lots yeah, and... Vertical motion. Yeah, this is... that That is the exact phrase you'll hear people say. We got a lot of vertical motion here. Yep. <laughs> and... It, this is just, you've got that cold pool of air that's plowing out this density-driven current, this turbidity current in the atmosphere that's plowing out, raising this warm, moist air in front of it and producing this sloping shelf mm-hmm. that is pointing out in the direction of motion. And people call this, mistakenly, a wall cloud all the time. It sort of and looks that, like it, it sort it of, does. but it's huge. Yes, but that's not the wall cloud. The wall cloud's further behind it if it's going to form, right? It's like a mini version of that in the storm, and then your tornado pops out of that. Right. So, yeah. Um, I think shelf clouds, especially if you, like, take a picture of them with, like, a wide-angle lens, they look like <laughs> like Goombas from Mario, <laughs> little mushrooms, you know? <laughs> <laughs> so we have a we have a day and you've contributed to this too john um in my class where we look at these pictures and we say what does this look like you know and it's to try to sort of how do you describe stuff especially if you're not a scientist right and so you've provided lots of pictures of things that look like tornadoes but aren't you know dust behind yeah dust behind you know a a truck going down a gravel road or something like that and i always do i have a really cool shelf cloud picture and everyone always calls it a wall cloud by the end of the time and i tell them they're all wrong and it's a goomba and then we move on (laughs) yeah i i really like uh i need to update that slide deck though so i've got the slide deck that is it a tornado or not (laughs) and uh, my current version of the slide deck has uh bob barker uh yeah no one will get that one (laughs) yeah i need to update that to at least drew carey exactly um but no it's great because like the one that is the most convincing and it fooled me for sure was uh it was a column of smoke getting pulled into an updraft oh see that's that's kind of tricky though because you know i mean like it, it was in the right place 
at the right time, Uh but it was just a large fire. It's very interesting. That was about to meet its meet its maker. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yeah, that's cool. So chest clouds, really scary. Roll clouds, really cool if you're on the ground to see them, not in an airplane. Right. Uh, Yeah. And then uh, another severe thunderstorm feature would be the Mammatus cloud. Yeah, I had to throw this in there because I feel like this is the one that is the most common of the, I don't even, I wouldn't even classify it as a weird cloud type, but I always take pictures of them every time. So they made my list. Well, you don't classify as a weird cloud type because you live in Oklahoma where it's one of the few (laughs) places in the world these are common. All the time. So common. Um, Actually, it was just two weeks ago. We had um, some Amatis in the evening and they were just beautifully lit. Twitter was all filled up with Mammatus clouds from Norman. And they look what they're named after, right? They're yep. the <laughs> sort of bulbous uh, clouds that form. And it's cool because they're kind of like, they form from air that's sinking instead of rising. Yeah, so. <laughs> Which is antithesis to everything we've been talking about. It's a... Uh... It's when air becomes a harmonic oscillator. Yeah. Which is real cool. So you've got your parcel of air. You know, you're, imagine your fake balloon around a chunk of air. And the air is very stably stratified. Mm-hmm. Meaning if you take the balloon and grab it with your, your giant hand of God in this experiment <laughs> and pull it up and let go, it is going to be denser than the air surrounding it. So it's going to fall back down. And if you pull it down, it's going to be less dense in the air around it, and it's going to accelerate up. Mm-hmm. Yep. But it doesn't just get to its level of neutral buoyancy and dead stop. Because by the time it's got to its level of neutral buoyancy, it's kind of screaming. Exactly. And there's some momentum. So you get this decaying oscillation, sort of like if you were to look at the amplitude plot of a guitar string mm-hmm. after you pluck it. Right. And so something plucks it, in this case a generally a giant updraft, and then you get these decaying oscillations and you get this now out of place pocket of air screaming down and then slowing down and going back up and gets these nice sinusoidal clouds. It's awesome. Yeah. So you usually see these in big blankets, right? And they're not always portents of bad weather, but they frequently form out on the anvil of severe, you know, large supercells. Just because right. that's where you get your oscillating air. Right. Yeah. You've got you've got a pretty big disturbance there. Yeah, exactly. So they're not always terrible, but they make for amazing photos. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I don't know of many thermodynamics books that don't have them on the cover. Oh, gosh. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Especially at sunset. Yeah, they're, they're quite nice. I mean, I, I think still... I, I don't know. I think Grant Petty's book doesn't have them. I know the Saunas book has them. I feel like this is a study that needs to be made. Yeah. Uh, If you are interested, like if some of these thermodynamic things kind of get you interested, uh, Mm -hmm. I highly recommend getting Grant Petty. So professor at UW-Madison runs Sundog Publishing because textbooks are too expensive, so he started a publishing company. Great. Um, He's got a radiation and climate book that's really good. Uh, 
but I think his thermodynamics book is hands down the best one out there right now. That's awesome. I'll have to uh, get that for some light reading. <laughs> uh, Sonus is really good as dense, uh, but it talks a lot about the, kind of these funky things. Uh, mm. But if you want to understand some of these things like skew T plots and get a mathematical foundation, but not too crazy at, at an undergrad kind of sophomore level, uh, check out atmospheric, I think it's called atmospheric thermodynamics by Petty. Okay. I'm going to check that out real quick. Um, you could also get, uh, clouds in a glass of beer. <laughs> I, I've never looked at that book. Uh, I own it, but I have also not done that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There's a weather balloon on the cover of his. Yeah. There you go. Yeah. And I think it's relatively inexpensive. It was like $30, 30 I think, when I bought bucks. it. Yeah. 36 yeah. bucks. That's not too bad at all. No. Compared and maybe I'll see him this week. So. Ah, great. Maybe you can get a, a reading copy. <laughs> yeah. And also, Sundog Publishing, coolest name ever. Great logo. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Great. I don't I, know. I, I think when I looked last, they just had the two books, and I bought both of them and read both of them. <laughs> yeah. Sweet. <laughs> of course you did. I'm just going to pick up this thermodynamics book for fun. <laughs> you to have something to do on Friday night. Yeah, uh, You know, I laugh as I put it in my cart. And <laughs> well, and, you know, Friday night we're sitting here recording a podcast about thermodynamics. Oh, man. You know, I just, fluid dynamics, I don't know why I keep coming back to this. Yeah. I just keep coming back to it. It kills me. It's probably because of this John Muir quote I have hanging on my wall about the daily building and unbuilding of the mountain range of the Sierra Nevada. And he's talking about the clouds, obviously. Yeah. Right. That's always been inspiring. That's why, yeah, dynamics is terrible and awesome. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, oh no, he's got more books now. Oh, no. <laughs> I'm looking. Uh, so he's got the Dakaria book. That's a Sundog book. Uh, I know Alex. I bet that's a really interesting one. First course in atmospheric numerical modeling. Uh, uh, uh. Uh, Practical meteorology, which is the Stahl book. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, The so Alex also wrote Python programming and visualization for scientists. Oh, there you go. That one's on sale. (laughs) Yeah, I'm not sure if it's been updated for Python three or not. Probably. That's the only only caution I have there. Mm -hmm. Um. And then recession of equatorial glaciers. That's a depressing book already. <laughs> yeah. Hmm. Yeah. Interesting. I am now looking at the for, for perspective authors page and saying no, <laughs> no, no. <laughs> um, I do appreciate that the Python book is spiral bound, so it will lay flat on the desk. Yes. <laughs> That's nice. Did That's... you did you modify? Okay, we're way off topic now. Um, <laughs> did you modify any of your textbooks in college like that? No, I wish I would have though. I wouldn't. I would never harm a book, John Lehman. Do you know me? <laughs> okay, so let me describe the process to you in case anybody else wants to. Do it. I don't know if I can listen to this. <laughs> this you get two like two by soft. fours. Oh my gosh! Oh. Or one by four would work, and you use clamps and you clamp them oh. really close to the spine of the book, and you take a hacksaw and you hacksaw the spine off. And then you take this Chainsaw Massacred textbook to Kinko's and you say, spiral bind this, please. And then $15 later, you have a wonderfully spiral bound book. Oh, 
I don't know. A little bit of me died right then, but. <laughs> I definitely did that to several of my books. I mean, it's a good idea. Why aren't more of them written spiral bound? I don't know. I can't. Well, it's probably more expensive, but probably not that much more. With ample margins for handwritten notes, as this one is. <laughs> no. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's too bad. Oh, that's so scary. Okay. Well, now with that horror story. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, Shannon. Well, I have to admit that I forgot my travel cowbell in my haste to pack at three o'clock this morning. Oh, that is no excuse. (laughs) So I'm very sorry, Tim, that the travel cowbell did not make it to Boston this year. Man, I'm going to have to bring my travel cowbell home. I probably don't need both of them in my office, but I do like to ring them a lot just to annoy my neighbors. <laughs> As you should. <laughs> but that means it's time for everybody's favorite segment of the show, Fun Paper Friday. Yay! <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, so I said we were going to bring this full circle, right? <laughs> and the full circle part of it is literally how dogs poop. Yeah, in terms of do they prefer to face a certain direction while they go to the bathroom? Uh-huh, and heart at all, and I say at all because there are a lot of people on this paper. Uh, yes. <laughs> believe that they do, and they say that dogs are sensitive to small variations of the Earth's magnetic field, and this is in um, Frontiers in Zoology, and it's from 2013, so this is pretty old, but... This was sent uh, to my advisor who passed it on to all of us. And it's very interesting because these researchers say that absolutely dogs align themselves north-south to defecate. Now, I wouldn't be surprised if dogs do have some magnetic field sensing capability. We know other animals do, and dogs generally find their way home. Mm-hmm. And they're not really going to see a lot of landmarks if they're out in the middle of a field. Yeah, exactly. So I could believe some of that, but I'm not sure where the selection pressure would be to drive pooping in a certain direction. I know. So one of the things, and I think we've we've touched on this. I mean, we've had, you know, four years of fun papers or something. So <laughs> I think we've touched on this before is, you know, when some animal is pooping, it doesn't want to get ambushed, right? And so I guess I would have thought they're going to align themselves where they can see where they perceive danger would come from. Yeah, I can see that. Yeah, I mean, that's Or, like, rotate while pooping. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) That's what I would think. I mean, if I think about my dog and how she aligns herself, it's usually north-south, really. Well, it's it's usually north-east southwest but i just assumed that was so she could be obnoxious so i could see it up close (laughs) right (laughs) so i don't know um but that's what these researchers did is they followed 70 different dogs i think it was um over for uh, 1893 (laughs) observations of poop and 5582 (laughs) observations of pee over like a year and a half period, which maybe that's why there's so many authors, just because you needed a bunch of dogs. Um, and they say that during times when the magnetic field is quiet, right? Because we have magnetic field fluctuations all the time, because the sun is a fickle 
mother and obviously the magnetic field is not always perfect <laughs> and so during times of magnetic field quiescence dogs are statistically very strongly aligned north-south and this wasn't what they set out to do I don't think it was when they started to run variations on the data that they found this um this correlation right which is weird to say right off the bat right <laughs> yeah and i will say like okay i know the statistics say that there's a statistically significant difference here just looking at the raw data it doesn't look very convincing it does not look convincing at all you can see a little bit of a cluster and it's definitely not north south it's sort of canted around north-ish, south-ish, is what I... Oh, that's the visual that I see if I'm trying to find just a visual trend in this data. Um, right. And this is where they started to break it down by times of magnetic field declination variation. Is the declination varying a little or not at all? And so when it's not varying at all that's when they see the highest statistically significant alignment. And then when it is varying, it's virtually, and by say varying like 0.1% or greater variance in the declination at a specific location, there's virtually no correlation now of how dogs like to line up. Right, but these are tiny, very, I mean, we have to have very sophisticated instruments in a magnetically quiet and sheltered environment. Mm -hmm. uh, to be able to do this, though I think an animal compass might know this is a general sense of north. I don't see it being a fluxgate magnetometer that's cryogenically cooled. And you're not carrying it around because some of these defecation observations are taken on when the dogs were on walks. And granted, they tried to account for everything. It wasn't like the same walk that they did every day. It said there were different walks. So, you know, it's not like the dog likes to poop at this one fire hydrant in this direction. Um, but it's not like they were carrying magnetometers around with them to determine declination variance, right? And you don't have to move very far to get 0.1% difference. So, I don't know. Right. I mean, even small buried objects could do that. Yeah, that's what I mean. So, you know, unless, you, yeah. Obviously, you can tell we're not super convinced by this data. <laughs> Well, and my first thought was it's they don't want to look into the sun because that would blind them if somebody was aggressing towards them. Right. And, and the easiest way not to look into the sun is to look north or south. Yeah. Um, so they said that they thought about that, right? Um, <laughs> and they said that, well, you're not a dog and uh, dogs are really close to the ground and maybe dazzling, which is the effect of the sun changing your vision um, doesn't affect them in that way. And so they kind of threw that out, but I'm not convinced either. I mean, though it doesn't blind them because they're short, I still don't know that I want to look in the direction of the really bright ball of fire. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It wouldn't be the premier thing. And that goes along with sort of my inclination too, of like, you know, you don't want to be caught unawares while you're pooping. <laughs> And if you look at figure two in the paper, when you see the strongest visual indication of north-south orientation 
is in the sunrise sunset periods. Yeah. So there you go. Hmm. Interesting. So I thought this was a really cool idea. I'm just not super convinced by the analysis. I'm also not convinced by the very emphatic recitation at how novel this is. Right. Because we know lots of animals use the magnetic field to do things. Yes. Yeah. I do like the fact that, um, okay, so it does appear that there might be some kind of alignment north-south. And the coolest thing, not the coolest thing, but this is a normal thing that these dogs do every day. So it's not like there was any sort of er, experimental biases upon them. You know what I mean? Right. So the experimental setup didn't change the observations at all. But as shown in figure five, they did carry a compass around and <laughs> uh, shoot the orientation of the dogs back with the, the transit while it was pooping. <laughs> I thought about this. <laughs> <laughs> about, you know, describing strike and dip and taking orientations. And I showed my husband this picture and said, this is a scientific paper. And he's like, is that dog? Oh, yeah. Yeah, that dog's pooping. <laughs> I was wondering, so, you know, we have these little magnetometers that our phones have that are compasses. Mm-hmm. And we have accelerometers that can measure orientation. Mm-hmm. I, I would think the pooping stance is unique enough that you could record a three-component accelerometer and magnetometer on the dog like, and just auto-detect when it's going to the bathroom. Maybe at the base of their tail or something? Well, I was thinking on a some sort of a collar that wouldn't rotate. Yeah, I guess you could. Well, I'm trying or to think... no, it could rotate because you could just do a well, coordinate rotation. Right, yeah. Huh, yeah. So, you know, a collar and then you get... Uh, 100 people to put these high-tech collars on their dogs that radio home when the dog poops. And <laughs> um, So they did uh, urination, too. But obviously, boy dogs and girl dogs don't urinate in the same manner. And True. And so I, did not, I didn't see to follow up because they said they were going to look into that and follow up on, you know, dogs lifting their left leg versus their right leg and how they orient themselves there. But if you have a boy dog, that boy dog's just going to pee on everything. Like, yeah, <laughs> I don't see this being a thing. <laughs> I also thought it was interesting in the, looking at the mix of animals, uh, there was a shockingly high number of dachshunds. <laughs> well, it was taken, this did take place in Germany, so. Yeah, true. Yeah, I think uh, I'm going, I attributed that to that. But this was an interesting concept, and I would love to uh, add to this database with all of our listeners that have their their friendly pooches. Uh, absolutely. Um, I do have to point out one because every time we do this, I find a new you know favorite figure, a new uh, favorite statement, and there was one statement about what was it? It was <laughs> when they were doing the urination analysis too, because I guess if they're gonna poop, you might as well do this too. <laughs> so, 44% of the data on urination originated from one dog. <laughs> wow. I don't understand why, but I think that's just a hilarious sentence that just made it in there with no explanation whatsoever. <laughs> <laughs> Poor puppy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that was great. Um, 
So it was really interesting, though, whether or not I believe in the robustness of the conclusion. I don't know. Yeah, I will. I will land there with you, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but it definitely fell under the fun paper. Yes, and it got the that media's attention because I do remember seeing some media articles about this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and we'll link that that into the show notes. Yeah, it's a PBS article. Yeah. <laughs> Which is great. Um, yeah, PBS NewsHour with a cute little puppy picture. <laughs> but, I mean, even if it is true, I you know, we know a lot about the compasses of birds and bees and and insects and stuff. So their point was there's not a ton of mammals whales do this too that um have done a lot of you know magnetic compass studies so the reason behind it no clue maybe it's real maybe it's not but it is interesting (laughs) absolutely and so if you have data to add to this uh database of doggy poop directions (laughs) we would love to see that shannon how can folks get a hold of us Please email us your plots, but not your pictures, at show <laughs> at don'tpanicgeocast.com. Find us on Twitter. We're at don'tpanicgeo. John is at geo underscore Lehman. I'm at Shannon Doolin. Uh, find us on the Slack chat room. Um, we are on the Software Underground, the Don't Panic channel. And as always, thank you so much to our Patreon supporters. If you'd like to support us on Patreon, you may do so. Patreon.com slash don'tpanicgeo. And until next week, remember... Don't panic. It's not an exact science. Any opinions, findings, conclusions, or recommendations expressed are solely ours and do not necessarily reflect the views of our employers or funding agencies.